uh, I want to say something um, again that I said Friday night, which is you might wonder why we don't have a missionary here giving the missionary sermons. And the answer is that uh, probably as many people as there are, you have different definitions of missions. And as I said to someone recently who was trying to understand the call of God about going and doing missions, the truth is that what we do here is an indication of whether or not we are going to be missionaries. If we are not involved in proclaiming God's truth to the people that we live in a dorm room with or work with or study with, um, we can't go overseas or even to another city like, for instance, New York, where our young people are going to be going this summer, and all of a sudden change doesn't happen. If you don't have a vision and commitment to proclaiming the gospel here, uh, going overseas doesn't change you. And one of the issues we have to face is, as uh, Dr. Haifman quoted Leslie Newbigin on Friday night, in many ways it is much more difficult in this country to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ when the things that are opposed to it are the sort of quiet and deadly opposition of uh, people who are completely committed to there being many paths, people who are completely satiated with the wealth and abundance of our nation and have no needs. So I encourage you to think, as you hear the proclaiming of God's word this morning, are you a missionary here, here, in this community, to uh, the people that you know and love? Uh, this morning our preacher is Scott Haifman. Uh, many of you have already heard him a couple of times. He's a professor up at Wheaton College. He has taught at... Uh, Gordon Conwell, I believe, no, I guess not Bethel. Were you at Bethel? Where are you, Scott? Right here. Did you teach at Bethel? Just for one year. Okay, I thought that was back there somewhere. Um, took degrees at Fuller over in Germany, and uh, but the most important thing is he and his wife uh, are committed to doing and do do missions, both in Wheaton and calling students to honor the call of the Lord to go into all the world, but also regularly in other countries in both Africa and Eastern Europe. And uh, so I encourage you to open up your heart to him, hear the proclamation of the word of God. Afterwards, greet him and his wife, Deborah, who is with him this morning. And Scott, we're delighted to have you here. Come preach the word to us, brother. Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. This morning's sermon really is part two of what we began in Sunday school. It's an attempt to understand the meaning and significance of Acts 4, chapter 12, in its context here. Acts 4, chapter 12, that very famous missionary declaration that there is salvation in no one else, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That declaration is in a context, a very particular context, the context of Peter and John healing this lame man who on that day was outside the temple begging for money. And instead of giving them 
giving him money, they gave him new legs in the name of Jesus. And as we'll see then in just a few minutes, Peter's declaration that there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved is simply the conclusion he draws from having seen again and again and again two important facts, which he saw in the healing of the lame man. Number one, that Jesus is the King of Israel and as such the Lord of the nations, who demonstrates the power of His reality and the glory of God through acting to redeem His people and meet their needs. And the healing of this lame man was then a picture of the healing that God would bring to His people, all of His people, at the end of the age. It was just a little snapshot of the future. Of course, the disciples didn't heal every lame person. And God doesn't heal every lame person today. But in His providence, God did heal on occasion to demonstrate clearly, without a shadow of a doubt, the healing that is to come to all of His people at the end of the age. And when this lame man then was healed, because Jesus was identified to be the King of Israel and the Lord of the nations, He immediately praised God for what Jesus had done. So the first important fact we saw this morning is the inextricable, crucial link that exists between the activity and character and identity of Jesus on the one hand and the glory of God on the other. Jesus acts and the lame man praises God. Jesus, as the Messiah of Israel, as the Lord of the nations, is, in fact, of course, the revelation, the only and supreme revelation in the end of the glory of the Father. Because He is the Son of God, the King of Israel, who is the Son of God, God Himself. And so that was the first thing we saw. Jesus acts and God is glorified because of the essential, crucial link between who Jesus is and who the Father is. And the second important thing we saw was that Jesus' activity in healing the, the lame man had to be qualified by Peter in two important ways. First, though it was the apostles who said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Though it was the apostles who trusted in Jesus to manifest His glory. It was not the power and piety of the apostles that healed that man. It was Jesus who healed him. And so the first great qualification we saw in verse 12 was that it wasn't faith as faith that healed the man, but it was Jesus Himself who healed the man because they trusted in Him. And their trust in Him was a testimony to the reality of the resurrection. Because the resurrection was the revelation of the authenticity and legitimacy of Jesus Himself. That He died on the cross not for His own sins as a messianic pretender, but for the sins of His people. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the cross of Christ. And so their dependence on Jesus is a testimony to the reality of the resurrection and all that that says about the authenticity of Christ. But it is Jesus in the end who healed Him, not the power of their faith. However, you must trust in 
God as He's manifest Himself in Christ in order to become His people and enjoy His blessings. So if it's Jesus who healed him, but it's the faith of the apostles that healed him because they had to trust in Jesus for Jesus to be honored in that situation, God responds to the faith of His people. Then how do we understand the relationship between the faith of the apostles and the activity of Jesus? And that was in the second qualification. In verse 16, the faith of the apostles is a testimony, a witness to the reality of the resurrection because it is the resurrected Christ. No, it is faith in the resurrected Christ. No, it is faith which comes through Jesus that gave this man this perfect health in the presence of the Jews that day. Verse 16. And we saw then this very important qualification at the end of verse 16. It is by means of Jesus, it is through Jesus, that the apostles came to the faith that they had in Jesus that provided the platform for the glorification of God through the activity of Jesus. In other words, to put it simply, Jesus is both the object of the apostles' faith and the one who brings that faith into being in the first place. He is the instrumentality of faith and the object of faith. It was this man's name, Jesus, King of Israel, Lord of the nations. No, no, it was faith in His name. Verse 16. No, no, it was the faith which is through Jesus, in Jesus, that brought about the healing of this blind man. And that's why, towards the end of the incident for this morning's contemplation, that's why in 4.12, Peter can say, there is salvation in no one else because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which he must be saved. Since Jesus and Jesus alone is both the author, the instrumentality of faith, and the object of faith as the only one who reveals the glory of God in the midst of His people. The one in whom we trust. As pastor prayed this morning, to be healing us now and to heal us completely at the end of the age. So, the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to salvation is simply the conclusion to be drawn by the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can give us the faith in Him that saves. He is both the only instrument of faith and the only object of faith. It's impossible to think that He would create faith so that we could place it in anyone or anything other than Himself. So that's where we left off this morning. Emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ. As we pick up the narrative now in verse 17 of chapter 3, we'll see this incredibly amazing turn of events. Because those of you who were there this morning realize then that Peter has just said that they are trusting in Jesus because God raised Him from the dead and it's the same Jesus that these very Jews now who are gathered around them murdered just a few months before. Remember what He said in verse 14. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and to this we are witnesses. 
Now, Peter's going to turn to those who killed the author of life and say something directly to them about the implications of the exclusivity of Jesus. They killed as a messianic pretender in their eyes the only pathway and object of salvation, the only instrument and object of our faith. What is he going to say to them? And this is the amazing thing. You might think, I might think, that the exclusivity of Christ would mean, of course, no more hope for those Jews. No more offer of the Gospel. That the exclusivity of Christ would mean a closed heart to those who murdered Him. They killed the author of life. And that's why I think this is an amazing thing what happens next. Because this is what happens next. Peter now turns to the crowd and he says, Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Messiah should suffer, He thus fulfilled. God uses even the malevolent desires and the ignorance of the nations and the ill will and hard-heartedness of His own people. He uses all of that to fulfill His purposes. He proclaimed it by the prophets and He brought it about in space and time. God is sovereign over the hearts of the kings and the hearts of the people and the incidences in Jerusalem and the crucifixion. They thought it was their doing and in the end it was God's. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Messiah should suffer, He thus fulfilled. This doesn't get you off the hook though. Verse 19, instead it calls you to repentance. Repent, therefore, and turn again. He gives them another opportunity. He never stops offering the Gospel, even to those who murdered the author of life. Because he sees all of human activity to be the working out of the sovereign will to bring about the progress of the Gospel. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as He raised me up. You shall listen to Him in whatever He tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Deuteronomy 18.15 The call to repentance is driven by the reality of the coming judgment. We are future-driven people. We know that the end of history is not retirement, but the return of Christ. We know that all of history is moving inextricably to that end. And that there is only one more great act of redemptive history left. The return of Jesus to vindicate His people and to establish the kingdom in all of its glory through the judgment of His righteousness. And so the reality of judgment to come brings about the call to repentance in the present because of what God has already done in the past 
to make that repentance possible and efficacious. So God's provisions in the past call for repentance in the present because of the reality of the future to which we are all going without a doubt. Whatever we are confident for in the future inevitably determines how we live in the present given the provisions that we have from the past. And because we are absolutely convinced in light of the prophets that Jesus is coming back, that the resurrected One will come again in all of His glory to judge the living and the dead, because that's our certain confidence, our hope for the future. We repent in the present on the basis of the provisions of the cross and the Spirit that God has made possible for us in the past. So that's what Peter offers them. He offers them a reminder of the certainty of the future and a call to repentance in the present because of what God has done in sending Christ the first time in anticipation of sending Him again to judge. And then he says, look, if that's the truth of the Gospel, and if we know, according to verse 24, that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came afterwards also proclaim these very days and that you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God gave to your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your posterity all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. God has sent His Son to Israel first that He might bring from Israel repentance that would provide the platform to take that same Gospel to the ends of the earth. And Peter says, that's what's going on right now. That's why I'm turning to you once again. I'm giving you one more chance to repent as God lays this foundation of repentance among His people Israel that on this foundation He might take the same Gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why, 4.12, that's why He offers again this Gospel, this salvation, this name to Israel because He knows that in God's providence and according to His prophets, the foundation of repentance, the establishment of God's people begins with Israel and from Israel goes out to the nations. And they're at that beginning point. And Peter says, God's laying that foundation. Be part of it. Repent now. Because when this foundation is laid, we're taking the Gospel to the ends of the earth. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the morrow, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We had lots of weeks. I would love to go through this text clause by clause and unpack each one of these statements in verses 17 to 26. This amazing sermon that Peter gives that led to many in that day who heard that sermon entrusting their lives now to Jesus, 
The same Jesus whom they had been complicit in crucifying just months before, they now turned their lives over to. And I'd love to be able to just unpack this. This sermon is great. I mean, it is, it's an amazing text. Well, let me just point out a couple of the high points from it that annoyed the leaders and brought about the salvation of many. Just three things, really. First, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Whether you belong to Israel first or to the nations on her coattails, because the death of the Messiah is not plan B that God cooked up somehow to compensate for plan A going astray. The cross is not plan B. It's not God's second way to save the world after He tried a first way. It's not His third way after a second way. It's not His fifth way after a fourth way. The cross of Christ is the fulfillment of what God had foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Peter says in 3.18. You weren't carrying out an accident of history. You were fulfilling God's plan from the very beginning. The cross of Christ, though a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, is the very heart of God's saving sovereignty. It's the center of the Gospel. It is the fulfillment of God's will. It is what God was about from the beginning. So only repenting and trusting in Christ will bring the refreshment that comes about from being reconciled to God. Because only Christ and His cross is the fulfillment of God's will. There is no other will and no other fulfillment of it. Only repenting and trusting in Christ will bring what Peter calls this refreshment from the presence of the Lord. Because only the cross of Christ can make it possible for sinful men and women and boys and girls like you and I to be in the presence of God without being destroyed. The cross of Christ covers our sin that we might be in His presence and from His presence receive the refreshment, the transforming, life-changing refreshment that comes from knowing Him. So Christ ushers us into the presence of the Father without fear of condemnation now and with confidence before His throne of judgment then when He returns again. That's the point, I think, of verses 19 and 20 in this sermon. We receive refreshment now from the presence of God in light of the coming of Christ that He might one day send the Messiah again appointed for us. This Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of His prophets from of old, can come true. The cross is the pathway to standing before the throne room in the throne room of God. Second, the fact that according to God's will, Christ is the universal Savior of all people, whether Jew or Gentile, also means then that those who don't listen to Jesus, who is that prophet like Moses announced in Deuteronomy 18 that Peter quoted, will in fact be cut off from God's people. It wasn't Moses for the Jews and Jesus for the Gentiles. It was Jews for Jesus and Jesus for the Gentiles as well. 
The call to repentance, yes, is based in the cross. But it is driven by the judgment to come. Peter calls them to repentance in light of the second coming. The urgency of the mission of the church is the judgment of Christ. Just as the good news of the mission of the church is the cross of Christ that prepares us for the judgment of Christ. It shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. In other words, God's people established in the covenant with Abraham now continue, not in Israel as an ethnic nation or a political entity, but in those and only in those who listen to Christ. In that old Hebrew sense of listening, i.e. obeying. Do you see that? In verses 25 and 26. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God gave to your fathers ethnically. Saying to Abraham, in your posterity shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's what's now taking place. The families of the earth are now being blessed through the proclamation of the gospel that is coming from the platform of repentance among Israel. But we must say, as Moses said before, that all those who do not now bind themselves to the prophet like Moses will be cut off from the people of God. From now on, only those who depend explicitly on Jesus as the Christ, the one who creates faith in Himself and the one who is the object of our faith in Him, only those who depend on the Christ are now part of God's covenant people. So even for Israel, there is salvation in no one else but the Messiah. And the Messiah has come. Finally, the fact that forgiveness is now found only in the cross of Christ as the preparation for the return of Christ in judgment. And the fact that the people of God are now found only in the people of Christ means that Israel, therefore, first, and then all the nations on her coattails are being offered yet one more chance to repent from their wickedness in order to be forgiven before Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. That's missions. Missions is the last chance to repent before the next great event in redemptive history. And the amazing mercy of God is that He has extended the period of repentance now for two millennium. Bringing the message of the cross and the reality of the judgment to come to all the nations. So in 326, when Peter says, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. When he says that, Peter moves from the necessity and exclusivity of Christ to the universality of the offer of the blessing of being part of God's people. Literally translated, verse 26 reads like this, God, having raised up His servant, that is Jesus, sent Him to you, i.e. the Jews, first, and in so doing is blessing you Jews in that He, i.e. Jesus, is turning each of you from your wickedness. 
Peter's point is that Jesus, who blesses Israel and us through them, by turning each one of us from our wickedness, is now confronting them with this message through the apostles. That's the amazing thing about missions. That's the amazing thing about you naming the name of Jesus at the water cooler at work or in the dorm room or in the lobby of the doctor's office or in the backyard of your neighborhood. The amazing thing is that you, like the apostles, are the instruments in the hands of God furthering redemptive history as you bring the blessing granted to Israel to the nations. Using the period of repentance as a period of, re- of preparation for the return of Christ, you become the next stone in the pavement towards the return of Christ. God using you to extend the offer of the Gospel one more time as long as we have breath to one more person as long as they breathe that we might be prepared to meet Jesus when He comes back to judge the living and the dead. Because Christ is at work today to establish His people by turning them back from their wickedness, Jew and Gentile alike, so that having forgiven them for their sins and having freed them from the power of their sins, they might live in the newness of life and be prepared to be greeted by Him when He returns in His judgment. So, representing Christ Himself, Peter looks at the Jews around him who just weeks before had rejected Jesus and he gives them one more chance to come back to God as He has now revealed Himself finally in Christ. Beginning with Israel, if Peter's sermon means anything, it means that God's patience is meant to lead His people to repentance. And how will you know if you're part of God's people? By whether or not you repent. If God's patience is meant to lead to repentance. And the preaching of the Word is the instrument that God uses to bring people to faith in that offer. Then our response of repentance to the preaching of that Gospel is the demonstration that we belong and that we're prepared for the return of Christ. This annoyed the leaders But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. It annoyed them, of course, because they thought in killing Jesus they were done with Him. And to hear again that the one whom they had killed is in fact the only pathway to salvation and the only preparation for the coming judgment of God, which they certainly believed in, to hear that again just irritated them. To hear that the one whom they had killed was the only pathway for their life made them mad. And of course, they reacted accordingly. They arrested him and threw him in jail. But on the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. God's always preparing, isn't He, platforms for witness? We don't have to worry about that. He does the preparation. We just testify to the truth of Christ. 
So here's a nice little platform being pre- prepared, you know. I mean, how else are you going to get the gospel into the royal family in the Supreme Court? That's a good way. Orchestrate the events of your people's lives in such a way that they get arrested and brought to trial in that setting. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Talk about a loaded question. They've already been declaring on the streets, right? It wasn't our name. It was the name of Jesus. Not the power of our piety. It was the power of His resurrection. Our faith came about through Him. He's the only pathway. You want to hear it again? We're willing to say it again. We offered it to the crowds. We'll offer it to you. We'll tell everybody all the time, any place. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else. Why? Because, ground clause, support, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you have to excuse me. I teach Greek, Wheaton College. I cannot say Acts 4.12 without saying one little comment about Greek. Only because... The English here has lost an important emphasis that I think we ought to recover. This idea of there's no other name under heaven given among men could be translated in a more expansive way, which has been given among men, because I don't know if any Greek students here, but that's a perfect tense verb. And as my students learn, what's the purpose of a perfect tense verb? It's to establish an action in the past that has continuing implications into the present and future. An action in the past that has continuing implications into the present and the future. That's the point here. There was a name given under heaven in the past that has continuing implications into the present and the future. And what is the implication of the granting of that name? It's salvation. Why is there salvation no one else? Because there is no other name which has been given. And it's a name by which we must be saved. Again, if we had several weeks, we could go through all of these must statements in Luke Acts. He uses them again and again and again. He's always talking about things that must take place. And whenever he does so, he's talking about a divine necessity. So in Acts 16.30, for example, when the Gentile jailer cries out to Paul and Silas, now not the Jews of chapter 3 and 4, but the Gentile jailer in chapter 16, when he cries out to Paul and Silas in their prison cell and says, men, what must I do to be saved? He means according to divine necessity. What must I do? And just like Peter and John, Paul and Silas don't turn him back to his previous religious commitments. They don't turn him back to his pagan idols according to his own culture and sensibilities. What do they declare instead? Trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. This is what one must do, whether Jew or Gentile. 
Just like Jesus declared in Luke 9.22 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed and on the third day must be raised. So too now we say there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This divine necessity, this must, if you will, as the outworking of God's sovereign will, determines the lives of His people in word and deed, in mission, and in everyday life. So when Jesus' disciples are brought before the rulers to answer for their preaching, Jesus tells them in Luke 12, 12, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you must say. God will provide the platform for your testimony. He'll put you on the platform and then He'll teach you what you must say, what must be said according to divine necessity in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's will, i.e., how you can name the name of Jesus in such a way that He will be central and sufficient for those who are now hearing the Gospel from your lips as you become the next step and stage in God's redemptive history in preparation for His second coming. Don't worry when they bring you before rulers. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you must say. And that's true about the water fountain, the college dorm room, the hallway at school, the backyard in the neighborhood. Don't worry. God will make the platform, put you on it, and teach you what you must say. Now, of course as this divine must is developed through Luke-Acts, at the center of it, of course, is the mustness of the cross and resurrection and the mustness of Acts 4.12. I think I just coined a word. I wasn't intending, but there it is. The mustness of Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So now, we'll finish the story. What did the Holy Spirit lead Peter and John to do now when they were brought before rulers, having declared what must be said about the Christ who had to die. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they wondered and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Right? Not salesmen. Witnesses. But seeing the man that had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What are they going to say? He's not leaping around. There he's leaping around. And why is he leaping? Not their power, not their piety, their Jesus. But when they had commanded them to go aside, outside of the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is manifest to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It was name. No, it was faith in the name. No, it was faith 
through the name that healed him. And there is no other name. Because when you murdered him, Jesus, God raised him from the dead. When you murdered him, when you murdered Jesus, God raised him. There's no other name. There's nothing else we can say. He's the resurrected one. He's got the divine stamp of approval. He's the pathway to the future. He's the coming judge. We can't come up with another message. There's nothing else we can say. This is what we must say. You conclude what you want, but we're going to keep saying it. We can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so, when the rulers had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all men were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old.